Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Business First Bank, with locations throughout the state, including 11 offices in the Baton Rouge area, providing personal and commercial banking, treasury management, and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank, banking with greater momentum. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world. From Mansers on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge, we're out to lunch with editor of the Baton Rouge Business Report, Stephanie Regal. It's business Baton Rouge style. Hi, I'm Stephanie Regal. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Running your own business is a challenge, whether you're a two-man shop or a major industrial contractor. And when your business is part of a franchise operation, there's a whole added layer of complexity that creates opportunities, but can also present certain stumbling blocks. Today, we're talking to one such successful franchisee. He is Ted Kurgan, the largest franchisee of Sonic Drive-In restaurants in the state of Louisiana. Ted owns 57 Sonic locations in the central and southern part of the state, just a fraction of the more than 150 Sonic restaurants he's developed during his nearly 40-year career. Ted is originally from Detroit and began his career in 1977 as a managing partner in an Alexandria Sonic. He eventually became a partner in the operation with his brother, the late Gary Kurgan, who was murdered in 1984. And anyone who's been around Baton Rouge for a number of years know that Ted played a key role in solving that high-profile crime and bringing Gary's killers to justice, though not until nearly 30 years had passed. In the meantime, Ted was growing his company and has been recognized as one of the top franchise outlets in the country. Ted, you have an incredible story as a businessman, as a successful franchisee, and also as a crusader for your brother's cause, which is a whole story unto itself. So it's a pleasure to have you here today on Out to Lunch. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I'm a big fan of the show, so it's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Well, so many, so many stories to tell, but let's start with the story of Sonic, and it's the biggest chain of drive-in restaurants still in existence, which is rather remarkable, you know, because decades ago, there were so many drive-in restaurant chains and now there's only Sonic left. So how did Sonic manage to hang on? Well, Sonic began in 1953 when uh, a uh, fellow by the name of Troy Smith got out of World War II. He had always wanted to own a steakhouse, so he bought a log cabin in Shawnee, Oklahoma and developed it into a steakhouse. But what happened was as part of the real estate deal, there was also a root beer stand out front of the steakhouse called Top Hat. And after Troy operated the steakhouse and kept the root beer stand going for about six months, he realized he was making more money in the root beer stand than he was in the steakhouse. <laughs> so finally, he closed the steakhouse down and, and, uh, and decided to just kind of develop this root beer stand concept. And a few years later, he got into a, there was a trademark problem with the name Top Hat. So, uh, and that was about the time he had put in uh, controlled parking with stalls. He'd gotten some jukebox uh, boys, as he called it, to put in the speaker systems for him. And, uh, and he changed the name to Sonic to kind of represent uh, the fast service. And, okay. uh, and the rest is kind of history. 
and and it's grown and it's still it's now the the biggest and most successful one in existence. I mean, the, really, the only one left. It is, and the and the key to it's, Troy. Is it, the, don't tell me it's because the food is so good. Well, <laughs> we like, we well, you sure, certainly like to think so, uh, but the the key thing that Troy did was. Uh, and that we still do today is all our managers are equity partners. So uh, Troy never really had employees, and we don't really have employees. We have uh, managing partners. And because of that, I think that those, those people hung on when uh, during good times and bad times, mm-hmm. and while uh, the other competitors in the driving business fell off uh, the radar, um, we were able to uh, to survive and thrive. So it's a good it's a good business model. How, how does the franchise model work exactly? Well, the um, uh, basically you buy territory, okay. and uh, um, and and Sonic uh, went through a, a period uh, in the late '70s where they were up to about 1,300 stores um, and had trouble operating that many stores, and they brought in a a fellow from the outside that uh, not only helped organize it, but eventually took a public in uh, uh, in '94. And, and that part of the story is these guys bought Sonic from Troy Smith in '86 for about 13 million dollars, and it's got a market cap wow. of about four billion yeah, today. Was, that's amazing. So it's uh, yeah, <laughs> that is so great. And and so in the midst of all this, you you were getting in into the business. You started in Alexandria. And right. what attracted you to Sonic? And Well, actually, my brother had come down, uh, and we had lived all over the country. We're from Michigan originally, but we were kind of scout, had spent years looking for just the right opportunity. And uh, my brother had come down, had known some guys from Oklahoma, that, uh, which is where Sonic's out of. And they had come to Louisiana to get in the Sonic business. My brother got in it. He called me to get in it, and I thought it was... I, it was ridiculous. I, I didn't want to come <laughs> down. I wasn't interested. And uh, and he kept after me for about uh, almost a year. And, of course, he didn't do very well when he started. And But once he, he uh, became a managing partner of his own restaurant, he started sending me copies of his dividend checks every month. And, and in, uh, the other thing that happened was it was 76, and it was the worst weather Worst winter weather Detroit had ever had in recorded history. Wow! And uh, about uh, about the end of January, I was ready to come someplace where it was warmer. That's great. And here you are, all yeah. these years later. What what locations work for Sonic? I mean, how do you decide where to open one, and what's the key? I mean, I suppose access and the roads have to yeah that's actually a great question uh you know at the end of the day we look for the corner of main street and main street Mm -hmm. i mean we look for a combination of of where the most people are Uh, we like to say sonic is a rooftop concept so we really like to be in the middle of a lot of homes Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why you don't see us on the interstate as much you know you'll see some of our competitors do well on interstates we really try to focus on, on houses. And, and, and why is that? I think a lot of that has to do with our menu. We have a lot of uh, ice cream and snack items. So we really attract a lot of people that um, are either on their way home 
uh, or at nighttime when they they want to go out and get a treat. Um, it's like a treat, yeah, treat after well, school well, it or a treat at night, definitely. It is, and an interesting phenomenon is we have we have restaurants that are in some very high-end areas where there are health clubs and what we see <laughs> is uh, and you might think well people aren't going to stop for at a fast food restaurant what we see is that people now actually work out they try to stay in shape and they'll reward themselves with ice cream so it's <laughs> it's a really interesting phenomenon that's it's going on so main street and main street and maybe next to a health club right you're right. Um, so, so who's a Sonic customer as compared to maybe a McDonald's or a Wendy's customers? Or is there a difference? Uh, I mean, are they really your competition? Well, you know, in our in our restaurants, we don't cook anything until you order it. So we really don't consider ourselves a, a competitor of, of the folks you just mentioned. We try to kind of position ourselves above a fast food restaurant and maybe just below a quick service. So we try to fit that niche where people, you know, really want high quality food. They want something that's made fresh for them um, and they uh, want it quickly. And we can do all that. And then it's still the drive-in model, which is kind of fun to order on the big board, but have there been any like sit-down Sonics or outdoor seating or people stay in their car? Well, Stephanie, it's interesting you had asked me that question. There have been, and we're actually developing a uh, inside Cedar Sonic on Segan Lane right now. Really? Um, yes. Uh, it's uh, the building is uh, was a McAllister's, and uh, we took we were able to get a hold of the lease, and uh, we should be open around August or September. So we'll have a combination of inside seating and drive-in and drive, a double drive-through. Well, there so. you go. So is this the first hybrid Sonic in this market or anywhere in the country maybe? It, we've actually done a few others uh, in South Louisiana over the years. Mm -hmm. um, this, uh, but, uh, but more recently as Sonic has been expanding into the north, they've really kind of refined the inside seating part of it. Um, it made some mistakes, but at this point they found what really works well. So, so this will be a, a, a first for really South Louisiana. So we're really excited. Interesting. And what was the thinking? That people just wanted the option or that maybe some people come on foot? Or? You know, we try to cater to, uh, to everybody. So uh, it's, uh, and, and the building uh, had, gave us the opportunity to do that. So, um, so we're excited. We're Excellent. Excited. Now, you mentioned the health clubs, and I love this. Have you all sagged into the health food segment at all or any healthier options or lighter fare? Has Sonic dabbled with that, or are you in particular? You know, we have um, behind the scenes really worked on the quality of our food uh, and the, I guess, the cleanness of our food um, to kind of segue into what you were just asking me. Um, for years, uh, it's just not something we talk about okay. um, for various reasons, but we really think that if we do the right thing, and we've been really working towards this for, I'd say, almost 10 years now, where we've made real improvements uh, in our food, and we think the quality speaks for itself, so we don't go out there purposely and, and try to broadcast it. So, so what does your business day look like? What, what do you do 
Well, well, Stephanie, we have uh, about uh, 2,000 employees, uh, and a number of those are so about 60-ish are managing partners and managing supervisors, and uh, um, so and we are open from six in the morning till ten at night, 360 two days a year so um my my day is different every (laughs) single day there's uh you know but um the great thing about my job is uh is we get to develop people and we develop people through our system into uh our managing partners so the really exciting thing for me and if you look at our managing partners i think 74 percent of them uh came up through the system so we have people that started as car hops that uh, and we have college educated people too so don't get me wrong but we have people that uh, started as car hops but you know never expected to have a job probably much better than working at walmart Uh, and now they're you know our managing partners of our businesses so uh, and do very very well financially that's so it's a it's a fun job and i'm you know i love doing it every day you're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Stephanie Regal. I'm talking to Ted Kurgan of Sonic Drive-In Restaurants. Ted, tell me about the challenges of developing your workforce. I mean, I know particularly with some of the, the entry-level and lowest-wage positions, I'm sure Sonic, like everybody that I talk to in South Louisiana, has trouble finding and retaining, you know, competent workers. Has that been an issue for you, and how do you address that? Well, I think that, you know, Times change and and the workforce changes, so um, there's there's no denying that that happens. Um, I th- also think, though, that generally I think kids get a bad rap. I think that there's a lot more really good kids than there are challenging kids out there. And um, but like so many other aspects of our society, I think the the ones that are challenging get the most attention and the and the good ones just don't get that attention mm-hmm. so I'd, I'd have to say overall you know I think there's a lot of good kids out there uh, and there's a lot of good kids that are entering the workforce um, you know it, it, it is a challenge because there's a lot of places that anybody can go work um, and certainly not just Sonic there's you know uh, there's a myriad of places but I think it forces us to be better and it forces us to run the kind of business where people want to come to. So, so I mean, you have an easier time hiring, say that, I mean, I talk to business owners all the time yeah. that, that just can't find, you know, low way, they, they, they have drug issues and, and not just kids, but I mean, adults, people in their twenties and thirties that it's, it's a problem with that segment of the workforce. You know, and it is. And I'm not denying that that is. And I'm not, certainly not denying that we have those problems. And, and look, sometimes we have problems with people that, you know, end up, you know, that they can't work for us anymore. And, you know, five, and, and a phenomenon I find in my business that I don't think other people have is people come back. And they might come back five years later after they've grown up a little bit yeah. or that they've, you know, found a way to handle whatever problem they've had, and um, and now they're successful. So, you know, I think it forces us to be uh, better business people, to run the kind of shops that uh, people want to come to work at. And Stephanie, look, there's a lot of places you can go to work, but how many places can you go to work where you can be a car hop, you can roller skate all day long, <laughs> and you make tips. I mean, you know, so so financially, um, some of our people, and especially the servers and the car hops, 
um, do remarkably well. Is it, have you ever encountered or hired some who can't roller skate? Is roller skate training Every part of the day? <laughs> no, we don't require that. You know, first of can, all, can you. Can they walk? Uh, they well, all on skates? <laughs> uh, no, they can walk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we like them to be on skates, but you know, the, the, you know, the market for um, how many people can do the job really well. And on then wheels. to say, oh, and by the way, yeah, you have to roller skate. You just really narrowed down the number of people you can hire. That's so, great. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears for a moment because this sure. is a part of the show we call another great idea. And so maybe you've got a friend who's always got a great idea for you, telling you about a job to apply for or somebody you should have a cup of coffee with or a great investment opportunity you should jump on. And maybe you take the advice and it turns out to be great or maybe it turns out to be a disaster. Maybe you dismiss the advice and you later wish you hadn't. Can you think of an example like that, and how did it turn out? Well, you know, my great idea was more of an experience. Uh, and what happened to me, Stephanie, is when uh, I was raised by a single parent. My mother, my father died right after I was born. And my mother took care of my myself, my brother, and my sister, who were all babies, mm-hmm. by being a seamstress in our house. And and around the time I was uh, going to high school, she just couldn't do that anymore. So she sold our house, she put some money together, and she started looking for a business to buy. And for whatever reason, and I'm like 14 and 15 at this time, she decided to haul me around while she looked at these business opportunities. And I think part of it was she just didn't want to go by herself. Sure. And, uh, and what happened was I just became really enamored with how business worked, how these franchises worked, um, how, you know, so so at 14, I was reading a P&L statement and giving my mom advice. Now, I, I you know, I don't know if I had any <laughs> advice to, to give, but, um, you know, so with my son, who's now 17, you know, I've tried to do the same thing with him, like I, for years now I've taken him to bank meetings and taken him to conventions and taken him you know so he could get as much experience as possible and he's starting to turn into an entrepreneur so I think the advice is to me just keep your eyes open you know there's there's so much going on and there's always so much opportunity but you just have to I think you have to be like a tuning fork you have to tune yourself into to be able to recognize those things when you see them. Yeah, that's great advice. And is your son interested in following in your footsteps with Sonic or maybe Uh, going in his own entrepreneurial direction? My son is interested in a whole lot of things. uh, And, uh, you know, I'd be thrilled if he does uh, come into the family business. Um, I I also uh, want above all else for him to be happy. So um, I'm trying to give him enough freedom where he can, you know, find his own yeah. way. And if, and if it turns out this is it, you know, that's yeah. great. If it's not, that's great too. That's wonderful. Well, you have such, a, such an interesting side story. You know, in addition to your business success, your brother's murder has been such a, a huge and, and tragic part of your life, and yet you played such a key role in, in bringing his killers to justice. And, and for 30 years you fought that fight thinking you knew who it was but not being able to prove it and law enforcement didn't believe you um you know it it, it, that's that's true uh i think the law enforcement knew who it was uh we we were able to establish that fact really early on 
Uh, and really, uh, Stephanie, within a matter of days uh, after the murder uh, occurred, um, what happened was, and, and this is you know my opinion. Yeah. So, uh, but w what happened to me was I felt like at the time I got caught up in kind of a political situation with the first district attorney was O.C. Brown, that uh, um, and O.C. was actually on his way out of office. But uh, so this happened in November, which was right at the end of O.C.'s term. And O.C. was, you know, very much behind it. You know, he agreed. Uh, you know, we had circumstantial evidence because, you know, my, we never got my brother's body and still still have it. Uh, and I felt like as, as O.C. left office and the new D.A., who was Brian Bush at the time, came on, that Brian just... Um, uh, uh, I felt like Brian was more interested in easy cases than uh, than doing the right thing, mm -hmm. um, and he uh, said because there was no body, which incidentally is not a law in Louisiana. You don't have to have a body, but you know. But I, I just think that the case uh, presented some challenges that Brian didn't think that he could live up to. And so, how did you keep this alive for thirty years and, and keep it? It, on the front burner without letting it consume your life and, and hurt your business and your family relationships and all that? Because it could go either way, I, you can imagine. Uh, you know, uh, Stephanie, I, I don't know that I have really did anything that someone else in my position wouldn't have done. I mean, my brother was the most important person in my life. Uh, he was my clearly my best friend. Um, he was my confidant. Um, and one day he disappeared just gone and and you know to people that hear the story I you know my my challenge is well what would you do if the most important person in your life just vanished yeah uh, and and uh, you know I set out to find him and to some degree I guess I'm still looking for him but uh, um, I I know that my brother wouldn't have given up on me and that's just not the way we're put together. So I just, uh, I just wasn't uh, ever willing to give up on him. And all the publicity and national attention, did that help or did that hurt? Was, was it difficult to have to relive it all the time? Uh, it was, uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. It was, um, uh, you know, when it's part of your life every day, I don't think you think in terms of is it difficult uh, or is it not difficult. It's just what it is, mm -hmm. um, and it's just the way your life is. Uh, you know, in in really an instant, my entire life changed. My business changed. My, you know, my personal relationships changed. It's it's hard to describe to somebody without saying it's like walking through a portal into another dimension. And nothing's nothing that was as, nothing is like it was the day before, and nothing will ever be like it again. Um, I think that uh, that ultimately uh, all of the uh, media attention was good um, because it not only kept it alive uh, with me, but it kept it alive in a lot of people in law enforcement that uh, felt like justice wasn't done 30 years ago. And, uh, and, and they hadn't given up on it. I mean, if you keep, you know, one thing you have to think about is that the, 
uh, district attorney's office did say back in '85 uh, that you know if they got a chance that you know that they would you know they would find a way to prosecute the case. Uh, and it took 30 years, and it took a DA, uh, Hill or Moore, that, you know, that took a difficult case because it was old, it, had, it was a cold case, it was evidence that was uh, difficult to find. Thanks. And, uh, um, you know, and it took a lot of courage from the mm -hmm. DA's office to, to prosecute the case. And I, and I really give Hiller a lot of credit, and I give the police a lot of credit. There were a lot of people that were involved in 84 that were still involved in the case today. In fact, the majority of the people. Yeah. Did you get support from the Sonic organization, from your, you know, partners in the in the businesses, from your employees, or, or was it hard to stay focused on business? Um, it, I got to tell you, it was. Uh, if I didn't have the kind of partners and uh, managing partners that I had. This, this, we would be having a, a, a completely different conversation and maybe not having a conversation <laughs> today. I mean, they really stepped up to the plate. And to their credit, my brother was really the leader of our organization. I was much more the nuts and bolts guy. My brother really had the relationships with everyone. Um, and, uh, you know, after a few days, they kind of shook it off and realized that we had to put our heads down and we all had to you know, work together and that, you know, there was, you know, a lot of uh, uh, media attention to it, some good and some not so good, and, uh, and just they were going to have to put their heads down and persevere, and they were able to do that. What you, you've been recognized as one of the most successful franchisees in the Sonic operation. What, what is the key to that? How does one become a successful franchisee? Wow, not to sound really canned, but I just think that you really have to care about people, uh, especially in a franchise organization when you have a, a lot of people. Um, you know, part of my success is, is corporate also. The guys that bought this, the Sonic business from Troy Smith um, still run it today, uh, which is really unusual, especially mm -hmm. in the food business. So, bought, and when did they buy it from him? Back uh, in the they 70s? bought it in '86. Okay. And uh, the the kind of lead guy on that left uh, when it went public, um, but the real nuts and bolts guy that put it all together is a fellow by the name of Cliff Hudson. And Cliff is still the CEO of Sonic. Um, he has a really has put together a great organization, um, and, and if someone has time it's in, it's an interesting story to look at cliff look at his management uh he has a lot of females in management he has a lot he's a lot of he's really built a, a company of what other companies are trying to get to but they can't quite figure out how to do that excellent well ted cargan you are the epitome of, of the entrepreneur and your drive and determination have proven so key to your success both in the fast food industry and in getting to the bottom of a very deep, dark, and personal family mystery. So it's been a pleasure to have you here today, and thank you for sharing your very moving story with me on Out to Lunch. Thank you, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. My guest today on Out to Lunch has been Ted Kurgan of Sonic Drive-In Restaurants. 
The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Peter Raschuti. And our Baton Rouge business consultants are Charlie D'Agostino and Ann Edelman. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from this show on our website. It's batonrouge.la and on our It's Baton Rouge Facebook page. You can hear this show and past episodes of Out to Lunch wherever you get podcasts and at itsbatonrouge.la. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsbatonrouge.la and WRKF 89.3 FM. I'm Stephanie Regal. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Mansur's for more business Baton Rouge style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch is recorded live over lunch at Mansur's on the Boulevard in Baton Rouge. Mansur's is open for lunch daily from 11 to 2, for dinner nightly, and for brunch on Saturdays and Sundays. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. Mitchell's music is available wherever great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Business First Bank with locations throughout the state, including 11 offices in the Baton Rouge area, providing personal and commercial banking, treasury management, and wealth solution services to help clients succeed. Business First Bank, banking with greater momentum. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world.